all welcome. It is Wednesday night. Yes. Generational change. No, I know it's I know it's generational change. Did I'm you, just checking that sure it's Wednesday. That? Yes, it's generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And if you were able to check out the banner that we put up, as you can see, Jen, what are we looking for? Yeah, guys, if you or anybody that you know is a Gen Z, or basically I'm looking for people ages 16 to 22, like junior in high school through college age, and they'd be interested in being a regular panel member on an ongoing series called the Gen Z Report, uh, I'm looking for those people. And if somebody is interested in political issues, um, you know, wants to participate, anything, wants to have experience working on a podcast, have them send an email to generationalchange at gmail.com. That's what we're looking for. Yes, uh, we definitely want to expand our channel. Uh, cannot just rely on us, even though we're two wonderful people, but it's clearly not enough. Yeah, so, I need the young people. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm calling, ca call, casting call for the young people. That's what I need. Yes. Not to be not to be confused with being ageist, which is something that Nina Turner just went off on about Nikki Haley. You didn't. Did you see that? I did not. See All right. That. We, 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 I, don't, I, we, I digress. But she went into this whole ageism thing about something that Nikki Haley said. Um, and I, I, whether or not I agree with it, I just thought it was it was interesting. Anyway, are we yes, ready? We are. I'm sending everything out for everybody right now. OK, make sure, you you know, make sure everybody button. comes on. Yeah. So, guys, this is our guest tonight is somebody that I saw doing an interview you know, I never remember on what show the interview was, but I remembered and then I um, reached out, got a copy of the book. It's called Inequality Kills Us All. And it's really, it's, I'm so excited to meet someone else who understands the importance of the collective. Um, but so our guest is Dr. Steven Bezrushka. He is an associate teaching professor at the Department of Health Systems and Population Health and Global Health at the School of Public Health. This is at the University of Washington, mind you. And this is someone who has had emergency room experience for many, many years and is from Canada, understands that healthcare system, and actually has traveled to places and seen different systems. So this is somebody who is a good reference. So um, Dr. Steven Bezrushka, welcome to Generational Change. Thank you very much for having me. It's a privilege to be here. No, I'm so I'm so grateful. Mm -hmm. I was very pleased to come across the video. I cannot remember if it was like a PBS or a, it was some recent interview you did about about the book. And I was just very fascinated because we've done stuff talking about how COVID has really further highlighted the need for universal health care. And we're big proponents of single payer health care. And everybody is like, you see, if we had health care, we would we wouldn't have this. And I find this so important because it addresses the, the root causes of the issues and the fact that healthcare does not equal health. And I love that. And I think that that's important because like, yeah, we could see that we need healthcare, but we're not looking further than that. So I think this is really important. So, I, I mean, I think that the best way to start about that is if you could sort of explain like where the, the, the difference between what is healthcare and what is health. So let me fall back on my uh, 30 years of being an emergency doctor. Uh, the easiest diagnosis I could make in the emergency department was that somebody was dead. All I had to do was fill out a certificate uh, with the date of death, probable cause, and that would be sent to the state and uh, linked to the birth certificate of that person. Right. So that would allow one to tabulate mortality rates. Who's alive, how long did they live, and so on. And I 
I went into medical, and I, I became a doctor because I thought it was medical care that produced uh, a healthy population. If I look back upon my medical school notes, I went to Stanford Medical School. Back in 1971, I wrote that in the early 1950s, the United States had the some of the best health outcomes in the world. But by 1966, so 15 years later, quite a few countries had lower mortality rates than we did. Well, for the richest, most powerful country in world history that spends so much money on healthcare, this didn't make sense to me. So uh, in the late 1980s, at, at which time uh, some 20 or more countries had better health than we did, longer lives that is, I, I went back to public health school and uh, with this question and uh, why, what produces health in a population? I, I played doctor long enough so I knew medical care was really a minor factor in that. And I came away, I went to Johns Hopkins and I came away recognizing two things mattered most. One was social factors and the other were political factors. So, um, you know, we have uh, our, our longest lived state, uh, one could argue our healthiest state, Hawaii, actually recognizes this. In the book, you'll find a graphic on page, yeah. Yeah, uh, really page 113 of what the Department of Health presents to its public, namely a big mountainside and... Uh, at the bottom are the chronic diseases we face as we age. Uh, on the shore are the personal behaviors, you know, exercise, uh, diet, smoking. On the other side of the river there is healthcare. So Hawaii situates healthcare way downstream. Uh, the river leads up to a waterfall, and in the waterfall are what are now termed the social determinants of health, poverty, environment, pollution, racism. Above that, they situate socioeconomic conditions, and above that, political context and governance. So our healthiest state recognizes the political nature of health production. So what does that translate into meaningful terms? Well, the first part of my uh, book, Inequality Kills Us All, inequality is a choice made by people through the political process. How much are we going to let the rich get away with and how much will be there for the rest of us? And for reasons that are hard to explain, Americans have chosen, beginning in the 1970s, to give the rich as much as they can possibly take somehow thinking that it will trickle down to us and we'll all be better off. So that's the difficult thing to try and engage Americans with. First, the question, do you want health or health care? Uh, you know, we don't have universal health care. And I, as I pointed out, we don't have health. Um, most Americans conflate the two terms. We access health, pay for health, get health, insure health. So that language keeps us from recognizing that that's only about healthcare. And 
we spend essentially half of the world's healthcare bill to die younger than people in 40 to 50 other countries. Yeah. That's, we're not getting value for the money we spend. No, and I, I want to, well, and I want to, we'll talk about that in a second, because I think you, one of the countries you were talking about was Sweden. I know that in Finland also how they, how they treat it is a whole different animal than us. Um, but before we talk about like what it is that are the real upstream things that we are really missing here, you know, like those things. But I think what one of the things you talked about in here is that our sense of such this individualistic identity in this country. And I always talk about this. People who have seen this show for two years for me talk about the importance of the collective. This is when I get called communist Karen and all sorts of things like that. But like the idea that even if you are doing well, we are only as good as the least among these are treated. Like we are never going to be better than that. And I, I need people to understand that. And so I, I just wanted to be appreciating you that you were pointing out the importance of this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the the second part of the title, it kills us all. Yeah. Uh, there's nobody in this country that can escape the inequality uh, that we somehow have structured in our society. A variety of ways of looking at that. The oldest old person, the, the longest lived person at any one time is never in the United States. So if if we were so healthy, surely, you know, one of our billionaires or some other person would be the longest lived person. That doesn't happen. They're almost always in Japan, Japan being the longest lived country. It was my discovering that in the 1980s, uh, you know, I used to rail against smokers in the emergency department because the, here they brought this, uh, all the troubles that they uh, uh brought among themselves to the emergency department and I had to try and help them breathe. I thought, boy, that's, you know, how can you do this, carry on this habit when it's so bad for you? I then discovered that in Japan, three times as many men smoke as in the United States. How does that, how can they be the longest lived country and not be harmed? Well, Smoking does harm them, just not as much as it does here. So the context, political context, the place in which you smoke, the country, really matters. So how does Japan get away with it? Well, something I, uh, I would point out before COVID is, do you ever see a lone Japanese tourist? No, of course not. No, they're always together. Do you ever see a lone American tourist? Funny. I am the lone American tourist. <laughs> yeah, so they do things together. They have this phrase, wa, or social harmony. And you suppress your own feelings so that the feelings of the group has harmony and you get along together. So culture is, you know, the culture of, of uh, wa or social harmony. Um, culture is the least understood part of of uh, public health. And as you point out, in the United States, we all think we're individuals and what we do individually is what matters when that's far from the truth. Yeah. I mean, I think that when I think about in Japan, how how long would they live if they didn't smoke? Like, imagine yeah. that, you yeah. know, like, I mean, yeah. so 
what this really comes down to is really the beginnings of life. And, you know, not to get all like, you know, on that issue of what, when does that start? Let's, let's, you know, we're not going there, but, but that the idea that it's really from the, when you're in utero and then I was freaking out when I'm sitting there thinking that I was in my grandmother's uterus and yeah. what that did yeah. and, yeah. and talk a little bit about that. I guess that's what, <clears throat> what is that like the, that, uh, embryology, which my husband was like his least favorite subject in med school, hated it, was one of the, like did horrible on the exam in that, like cursed it, but he made it through. But, um, will you talk about that? Like the importance of the, these are way upstream factors. So, um, I like to come up with little one-liners that I hope people will remember. So uh, as we go from the erection to the resurrection, it's the first thousand days after conception when roughly half of your health as an adult has been programmed. Now that's amazing. And, and, and so who has responsibility for that first thousand days? Uh, you know, when your husband studied uh, embryology, uh, as you point out, your uh, you began life in your maternal grandmother's womb yeah. because that's where the ovum that begat you was made. So your grandparents' circumstances actually affect your health, and we can demonstrate that in a variety of ways. But then that uh, fertilized ovum, now called a zygote, divides about 42 times in the uterus to produce a newborn. After that, there are only five further cycles of cell division, we're talking about cycles, to produce you the adult. So if you want to intervene in a sensitive period, because cell division is a very sensitive period, would you do it in 42 cycles in nine months or five cycles in the next 10, 20 years? Obviously, the concentration of the potential for change really occurs in those first nine months. And by the time, and to sort of bring it up to a thousand days, by the time you're blowing out two candles on your second birthday cake, that's about a thousand days from conception, then roughly half of your health has been programmed. So societies that are healthier somehow privilege that period in various ways. One way is to give a, a woman who's pregnant and has a, a paid job time off after she has her baby, paid time off, we can't have that. We well, that's what we can, that's where we, oh, okay, we could talk about Sweden because this is something that fascinates me to no end. I have a good friend here who just had a baby a year ago. She has a best friend from Finland who came over for the baby shower with this big box that everybody gets in Finland yeah, when they have yeah. a baby. That's and, a Finnish baby box. Yeah. Oh my God. It's the cutest thing ever. And they, <laughs> they like artists compete to be the ones to have their artwork on the box. And this is what they give to every mom. And it is everything that baby needs for the first year of its life, everything. And the thing itself becomes a bassinet. Like, you know what I'm talking about, right? I have to repeat this because people like all the mothers at this um, baby shower we're walking around like alien, like that we were looking at something alien from outer space yeah. and they give it to everybody. Yeah. It's so, fascinating. So in the Scandinavian countries, uh, the first year is uh, you're required to take paid 
paternal leave, parental leave, uh, at your full pay. Actually, Sweden, that gives you another um, well, 444 days total at at your full pay. And the father has to take uh, 13 weeks or something like that. The rest of the second year uh, of your uh, in, in Sweden is at a lower rate of pay. And it's optional, about 70% pay, I believe. Then in your child's third year of life, you can put your child in a Swedish government-run daycare center that's free. And to work in a Swedish government-run daycare center, you have to have an advanced degree in play. Why? Well, you know, it's a three-year-old. You got to socialize the child to uh, to interact with other children, and you need experts there. So they really have a, a, a well. The Swedish government spends more money on the first year of life of a child than in any subsequent year. That's amazing. We put all our money uh, in the later years when the child's already a delinquent and facing all sorts of other problems, and it's not going to be much benefit then. And then, of course, uh, we uh, don't even do that very well. We put all the money on people my age and older in, in uh, Social Security. So we we don't we don't have the structure in place to to obtain good health. No, and we don't really care to except for and and I think what it really ultimately comes down to the the glaring most obvious thing is that it's for profit here. And yeah. and that makes it so that it's never going to be what's in the best interest of the majority of people. It's always going to be what's in the best interest of the owner class. Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately what it is. You know what I'm saying? You call it whatever they want to call it. So we, in 2021, we spent $4.2 trillion. That's 18% of our total economy on health care. And, uh, and that's half of the world's total, essentially. That's right. And uh, it's a very profitable endeavor. And it's... Uh, but right now, there's a, there's sort of a crisis in healthcare because uh, a lot of people are burning out and um, and leaving the profession, or you know, uh, hard to find nurses, hard to find a lot of these uh, healthcare workers. How that's going to play out, I don't know. But since the profit motive is so huge, uh, it's going to be very hard to change. And, you know, one, something that that makes me think of and, you know, in this country, why we have like certain shortages, not not only the exorbitant cost of medical school and that people can't afford to go and then they, you know, pay it off for eternity. But the fact that we have so many less primary caregivers yeah. and that everybody is special. I, I say this, my husband's a urologist. So, I mean, like we just it was like almost presumed. I can't even explain it. Like by the time, and he graduated in 97, I think. Yeah. 97. Um, and yeah, it was just presumed like that. It was almost everybody in his class did something that was a specialty. Right. And you, and the, and the hardest specialty to get into turns out to be dermatology. I know. <laughs> they Can we call bankers. it Derma Holiday? Derma yeah. Holiday. <laughs> yeah, they keep bankers' hours and people pay cash. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is this is such a crazy system. So studies show that uh, the 
if you have a much more primary care focused healthcare system, you have better health outcomes. And, you know, given our our tremendous specialist focus, uh, that's another reason that it doesn't work. I mean, overall, medical care is such a minor player in health production. Uh, I'm going to be talking to the medical students here uh, in in two weeks' time, and uh, it's hard to get them to recognize, it's hard to get them to accept that medical care is only a small player. Yeah. I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Besrushka. He is associate professor at University of Washington, author of Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even touch on that. We didn't even touch on the COVID. Like this was so much, you didn't even have to mention COVID. And it was still like, to me, I think that the point was very clear. But anyway, I'm sorry. The Go American on. people, um, yeah, we're a selfish culture, obviously. But it, it gets to the point where you almost have to wonder if people have been so indoctrinated that they're welcoming their own demise. I mean, it was so obvious from the very beginning when this pandemic started, I can actually remember talking to her when she was running for Congress and saying, we're going, we're getting shut down. Like I knew it was going to happen. And I said, it's going to be pretty, and it's going to be a lot worse than people think um, because our country can't get anything right. And we're also an extremely unhealthy country. Um, and everything's always interconnected. We don't have universal health care, and yet the fast food industry is completely subsidized. So there's a reason why, you know, the people who can afford to live in the Puget Sound region don't have to worry about not being able to eat healthy. But for those who live in, you know, the inner city of Seattle, Tacoma, and so forth, you know, they have a lot of problems regarding their options. And so everything in that respect is interconnected. And yet for some reason, they decided, okay, we're just going to take this lying down, even though we know we need universal health care and universal basic income, at least for the duration of the worst parts of this pandemic. Most of the world was able to get it. We weren't. And yet today, it seems like they're still okay with that fact. They're still okay with the fact that we had the worst outcomes, you know, and it doesn't matter that you're in blue Washington or red Florida, the corporatization of our society, the corporate special interest takeover of our government couldn't be more obvious than what happened during the pandemic. Your thoughts. So um, how does how did inequality, our economic inequality, income inequality affect the pandemic? Well, it, if you take state mortality, from COVID in 2020, uh, there was a very good relationship with the income inequality in those states. A study of 84 countries found the same kind of relationship, namely more unequal countries uh, did worse with the pandemic in terms of deaths. More unequal, there's less trust in more unequals countries. A lot of that kind of uh, 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 of information is out there. So, you know, if, in a very unequal society, um, you don't trust your neighbors. You don't trust the government. I mean, levels of trust in this country have really plummeted to uh, uh, very low levels. And to recognize that that's killing us is is really tough. What needs to be done, you know, Americans, when they uh, are challenged to recognize that another country is really doing better 
we're doing differently, doing things differently, will rise to the challenge. I grew up in the uh, in the Sputnik era, where the Russians launched a satellite in 1957, and it beamed a signal down to us on Earth, and and everybody in this country was caught totally unawares, mm-hmm. and so we were. Okay. And so what happened with that? Well, we set a goal of landing a human on the moon by the end of the 1960s. And of course, we were successful. So if we recognize the need to uh, um, to rise to the challenge of what other countries can do, we can formulate a plan to do so. Australia, for example, uh, in in 2010, it was number three in what I call the Health Olympics, the ranking of countries by life expectancy. We're about 44th, uh, according to the latest data. Anyway, the, Swedish, the Australian government uh, uh, said, what would it take to become, to beat Japan and become the healthiest country in the world? And, and uh, you know, they formulated a plan with that goal in mind, but you know, since everything is political and a new administration came in, they sort of set that goal aside. But suppose, suppose you know, we had the State of the Union address uh, recently, and it's mandated in the Constitution. Suppose the State of the Union address required us to compare the state of this union with other unions. Yeah. Suppose the president said, well, my fellow Americans, uh, we die younger than people in Thailand or Cuba or Costa Rica, but I'm sure you're fine with that. Suppose the State of the Union really was in comparison to other unions. Maybe we'd wake up. Yeah, no, I think it's very important. And that's one of the reasons like we do this show and put information out as much as we can. I think it's incredibly important. And like, I don't watch the State of the Union because it's not telling me anything that I need to know. It's not telling me anything I'm going to believe that's coming out of his mouth. And it isn't anything that's important. If it was actually the, the health of the union or at least like if he were required to do that information, I think the executive director should be required to give a report of the health of the country. And I think that, yeah, I think if that was really spelled out for people in prime time, it would be like pretty eye-opening. People really think we have the best healthcare in the world. Yeah. You have the best, we do have the best healthcare in the world for the very rich. And it doesn't give, but, but it doesn't give them better health even though they're rich. That's right. That's a, that's a very hard idea to get across. Uh, you know, as a medical doctor, uh, there were times when I harmed people. And and a paper from Johns Hopkins in 2017 or 18, uh, surgeons there said medical care is one of the leading causes of death in this country. Well, you think our being dead first is hard to get across, trying to get people to, uh, to consider that medical care really can harm can also help, but it can harm, um, is, is really beyond the pale. Yeah. And I think something else that we don't account for, even when we're looking at that, is something that you referred to. I, I, I cannot remember the phrase. It's sort of like healthy years, healthy years, quality years that you have versus 
total years because yes. living with something chronic, you know, like explain that because how do, how do we even account for that in this country? So there's a concept called healthy life expectancy or disability adjusted life expectancy of the years uh, of, of the years in which you live, how much of it is, uh, facing various chronic diseases, the ill effects of uh, uh, diabetes, having had a stroke, various cancers, and so on. So uh, the World Health Organization uh, uh, actually produces that number on an annual basis, and it requires a decision uh, as to uh, which disability is worse. Is it better losing a leg or losing an eye uh, it's a qualitative judgment, but nevertheless, we rank uh, the same or worse in healthy life expectancy as we just do in terms of uh, uh, of lifespan. So, um, you know, our medical care system does not repair people enough so that we can say that it's uh, keeping us healthy. Same thing true is true for happiness. You know, we the the Declaration of Independence entitles us to life, but as I pointed out, it's not a long life. Uh, entitles us to freedom, but given that we house a quarter of the world's prisoners, <laughs> that's that's in dispute, and it only it only grants us the right to pursue happiness. Remember, that's that's in the Declaration. And we certainly pursue it with a vengeance. Uh, there's a, in Seattle now, we have a delivery truck. You'll know uh, uh, which company it is from. It's got a blue body. And they put a new sign on the side of it. Warning, contents may cause happiness. Uh. <laughs> you know what? Living in Seattle has to sometimes be one of the most disgusting. I don't, I don't mean like from a, from a physical sense, like just... I, we have a friend who's a journalist who spent a couple of weeks out there um, really um, talking to a lot of the houseless people, the home, the encampments and, and the people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really very problematic where you are. Like the, it's yeah. just so I, can, I, I mean, disgusting in that way. I think if anybody, you know, for those who still think that this is the, the issue here is that we just need to elect more Democrats. Just look at Washington and California to supermajority blue states. And it is as difficult to live there as any place in the United States, period. Yeah. Um, so there's a study looking at uh, mortality rates by U.S. state trending from 1958 to 2017 and stratifying by whether the states had conservative uh, legislative policies or uh, liberal legislative policies. And uh, the conservative states' uh, uh, life expectancy improved till somewhere around 1980 or, or so, and then it sort of flatlined. And in the more liberal states, uh, it's improved considerably more. Hawaii being, of course, uh, a right up there um, as a liberal state. And I think you're from Florida. So yeah. um, 
Florida is kind of a, you know, it, it, it's a conservative state and there's a variety of, of policies that limit health improvements. But if you look at a map of Florida and life expectancy by county, it shows the economic gradient. You know, the worst health is up in the north where poorer people live and yep. better health is down in the south where uh, the richer folk reside. Yeah, that was something also that wasn't at all surprising, that map that even the, just the national gradient that shows where the darkest circles are. And it is no surprise that it is native populations and southern black communities like it, it, talk a little bit about that, because I think that oftentimes we overlook that and. I know that race is not a that it's a social construct, but at this point, it's so like in us and how we treat people that this is what has now been caused. So if we uh, so just to go back to that map, um, if we look at uh, the map in nineteen in twenty nineteen and compare it to the map in twenty fourteen, uh, health has declined actually. In most of the counties there that from 2014 to 2019, consistent with the overall health decline that's happened in the country. The issue of race, um, racism is really, yes, it's a social construct, but uh, we, American Indians have the worst health outcomes and uh, African-Americans have the second worst health outcomes and where they live in the Mississippi Valley and the Southeast, you can see that very clearly uh, on the maps there. So how does racism impact health? Well, um, take black uh, household wealth. It's, uh, it's pretty well median, the middle black household wealth is about 10 or $20,000. The white median, again, middle, half above, half below, is close to $200,000. And, you know, uh, as I quote in one of the books, I've been rich and I've been poor and rich is better. And until we look at the problem of poverty among African-American communities and do something about it, uh, we're not going to get very far. Um, William Darville, uh, Jr., who's a, uh, a scholar at Duke University, has a program for reparations. He suggests taking any uh, Amer African-American who has a slave ancestor and transferring wealth from the rich to equalize the difference between African-American and uh, white household wealth. So... Um, some states are doing that. Evanston, Illinois has such a program of reparations and it's being considered in the Caribbean. Uh, it's being considered elsewhere. So, you know, I, I think, you know, to my sort of summary uh, statement, care, share and repair. Care, care for people in early life, that really matters. Share, let's not have a big income gap. And since we inherited all the wealth of our forefathers who profited from slavery, we need to repair for those sins. 
Yeah. Something that was really interesting to me was that sort of um, the anomaly in women that were coming from other countries and how like I, the immigrant, I mean, that, that was very interesting. And also the Latino community I thought was really interesting, but that was something you spoke about earlier in like, is in Japanese culture is that sort of like social, like uh, solidarity. But talk a little bit about the thing about how the women who were immigrants that were had babies here, that they were still better off. Yes. uh, Most studied were um, African women who came to the uh, immigrated to the United States and they looked at birth weights of those babies. African-Americans, they have very low birth weight babies and a lot of preterm deliveries. You know, they're not they're not in the womb for nine months and their development is compromised. But the women who migrated from Africa don't follow that pattern. Uh, They seem to have heavier babies at term. And that's because they haven't been exposed to the American style of racism. And there hasn't been the intergenerational transfer. Remember, uh, you started your life in your maternal grandmother's womb. And we can trace that back to slavery and Slave, we don't have birth weights of slave babies, but we do have measures of their weight at one year. And slave babies were not very big at age one year. And we've had the continual uh, transmission of that to the present. Another thing that's kind of important to bring up is that uh, the solution to many problems, uh, uh, we are told, is to stay in school and get a college degree. And um, African-Americans are much less likely to do that. But even African-Americans who get a college degree are going to have higher rates of infant mortality and low birth weight than all the other racialized groups. So why is that? Well, their health has been compromised over many generations, and that includes brain development. Uh, You may not be aware of it, but there's a study in Florida that took all children born from 1992 to 2000 that then went to public schools, and they tracked their birth weights and how they performed on standardized tests in grade three to eight in Florida. Uh, And they found the lower your birth weight, the lower your standardized test performance, and uh, the less education your mother had, the same relationship was there. So a mother who wasn't a high school graduate, but a high birth weight baby, was at the low end of a mother who was a high school graduate and a low birth weight baby, and so on up the cascade. Um, yeah. This is a and and this is a very important study. I don't know if uh, you know it's the only study we have on large numbers. There were I don't know how many million of chil- a million children enrolled in the study, but it has tremendous statistical significance. Yeah, and I mean. So- Oh, I'm sorry. Continue. Please. I was just going to say, and you know, something that I've read a lot about is the disparity in healthcare between, um, you know, groups in this country in terms of also attitudes about healthcare. 
and the history that has created that, which is pretty warranted and, and how people were treated in healthcare. But this idea that generational trauma, which is what we're talking about, that comes from stress. Like we always talk about stress kills and you need to relax and you need to do all these things. And we think about it only from the perspective of us now. Yeah. Like right now I need to be de-stressed or it's not good for me. When in fact, the fact that my mom was stressed out potentially when she was pregnant had way more to do with my health than me being stressed out right now. Absolutely. You put it very well. Uh, stress, I call the 21st century tobacco. You know, not many Americans smoke anymore, just the poor. Uh, and we are one of the highest uh, stress countries in the world. You know, the Gallup polls do these international stress rankings. And in the latest Gallup poll of stress, we're tied for fifth uh, among countries, among the most stressed countries in the world. And this, despite all the conveniences we have, you know, our smart devices, uh, remote controls, you know, we can accomplish so much. And yet we are so stressed in doing it. And I think social media has vastly exacerbated that. You know, you you want to look good on social media. You you may not be able to afford uh, plastic surgery, but there are selfie surgery apps <laughs> to make you look <laughs> yeah. better. Well, they're um, just apps that you can filter and make yourself oh, look right. however I was you say, want. Well, yes, yes, but we're a very, but also being a fairly vain culture we're selfish. plays a role. We're just sure. so selfish. you know the things that people value. You know, I can remember when the Kardashians came out in two thousand and three. I still I think find it, it gross. I mean, at the time, I, I was just. I was beside myself. I'm like, people want to watch this stuff? They do. They're, more people can name the Kardashians than the, the people on the Supreme Court. I have a fairly intelligent friend who was uh, recently in D.C. and didn't know what the whip does. And I'm thinking... Most people don't know what the whip does. Yeah, but people should know what they do. Uh, but why? Because if you want to know how things are done in terms of enacting law. That's the point of the parliamentarian. I don't, we don't need to know all the little details of, of I, that. I would I don't say think. that these things are very important, but also the value of understanding that with social media, they've created these, you know, grifting empires, if you will. You know, the people mm -hmm. that create these shows that yeah. are constantly telling you that the problem here is that it's the government that's the problem. No, the government is only the problem because corporate power has bought the government. The government is not a thing. Sure. You know, there, there's this conception that that's what it is. No, the reason why the government sucks in Florida <laughs> is because of Big Sugar and FPNL and any of the major power brokers within yeah. the state that have captured it, whether mm -hmm. it is Governor DeSantis or whomever. Yeah, state. that doesn't make a difference, by the way. The person sitting there makes the minimal difference to anything. The problem in the state of Washington is you have corporate power, particularly Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and the like, uh, Amazon, oh, uh, Microsoft. Uh, they Another have psycho. completely bought off the Democrats, yeah. and the same thing repeats itself. But yeah. you know, Unless I think... It, oh, I'm sorry, go on. It doesn't matter who's in charge. There is this idea, and we get people in the chat... And it gets really tiring after a while where they really think if we just make it a Democratic majority, that that's going to solve the problem. A few more Democrats. And I'm thinking the problems with a Republican majority and a Democratic majority may not be the same, but they're basically the same. <laughs> 
It just yeah. depends on how you want to do it. Yeah. You no. can do it through austerity or you could do it through government overreach. Either way, you're screwed. The reason I do say it is because otherwise I'll forget it. But one of the things that comes from me, like in my mind from social media, is it just further highlights the inequality. Yeah. And that is the source of stress and yeah. something that I had never really thought about in terms of the difference between poverty and what is inequality like and that poverty only exists because we like it's a it's a social creation based on choices that we make. Yeah. So, uh, you know, poverty is a policy choice. Right. And uh, recognizing that is very hard. You know, I, I'm, I'm right now teaching a course in all these ideas, an undergraduate course. And one of the most difficult things that I, the challenge I present to students is that is what is the business of the media? And any business is a buyer, a seller, and a product. And so I ask the students to follow the money to decide, you know, the buyer pays money to the seller for a product. And so I ask them, well, you know, when you go to, when you uh, go to the internet, uh, how much are you paying? Well, it's free. I just, you know, during the pandemic, you remember they used to take students to uh, uh, a Starbucks or someplace like that where they could access the media. Right. They weren't paying anything for that. So where does the money change hands? Well, the advertisers pay the producers for eyeballs, clicks, ears. You know, we are sold to the advertisers by the producers of the media. And that is, once you begin to understand that, then you get a sense of all the forces that are acting on you and... Um, if we understood these things collectively, I mean, none of these ideas we're talking about, you couldn't put in a grade five or six curriculum. I've had a student who developed a curriculum for grade six and she piloted it uh, in Seattle. And it was amazing what you could get uh, grade six people to understand. Now, trying to convince a school board to do that <laughs> is probably is is extremely difficult. I mean, I've tried to do that uh, and failed uh, immensely. Well, but we're in the Florida. Fact that, the fact the fact that school board is an elected position is enough of a problem yeah. to begin with. Yes, yes. Being that it's an elected position, the privatization of school was inevitable as a result, yeah. as far as I can see. And yeah. in our state. It's as evident as anything. We're fighting over what constitutes parts of black history here. So we're still in sort of what I kind of think we're like in the, in the like Neolithic of, era here in Florida. We're yeah, somehow but, like you, you in know that what, though, genre. In, in the grand scheme of things, if we're being completely honest, it doesn't mean anything. It's just another wedge to try to drive people to divide. Well, that's true, but it is still very frustrating that they do get enough response to this because they're people that are still willing to fight over this. We that live, is what is frustrating. We live in a society today where home ec isn't really taught anymore no. arithmetic isn't really taught anymore um you know civics is not taught civics my students don't have a clue right. how the political process works but, nope. but professor they, they do know how to work a smartphone and in the grand yeah. scheme of life that's definitely more important than just about anything most else. of these kids cannot navigate out of a paper bag 
I'm and sorry, they can't. Is by it's partially by design. You know, when I see a parent who gives their child a cell phone at the age of eight, <laughs> like that, I mean. That's child abuse. That's, uh, uh, you know, those are electronic child molesters. Think of it this, think <laughs> yeah. of it this way. And that's, you know, that may be a, a fairly, uh, you know, it's, 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 not, it's somewhat gratuitous in terms of that particular talking point. However, in some ways it isn't because think about it. In many ways, they give them that phone as a babysitter, so yeah. they don't really have to deal yeah. with them. Yeah. Then there's the element of- I love this is coming from someone with no children, by the way, just with that, like, just want to give that observant. a purpose. I know, I'm just saying, I'm, it's always fun from people with no children. Private universities, especially, you know, liberal arts colleges, they're going to make a killing in the years to come because what they're going to do is they're going to study the cognitive effects of uh, technology on children particularly the use of cell phones. Yeah. You know, the idea that you use your cell phone as soon as you wake up in the morning and when you go to sleep at night, and you're going to find that so much of the development that is necessary in the adolescent years, is it doesn't matter if people are eating properly or getting the health care. If we're so caught up oh, yeah. in technology, I've always said it's our greatest asset, and it's our greatest detriment all at the same time. I'm very thankful that I didn't have this when I was younger. Well, for a lot of reasons, because nobody can prove anything that I ever did. But I'm, I, I'm just yeah. like, I'm so thankful that we didn't have that. And I actually feel bad for even my kids, like that this is what they are kind of stuck with. The people are so much less connected. And it's so, and that's something that other countries have cell phones. Other countries have these things and they are infinitely more con concerned with the collective than we are. And Why think, is that? And, and think of it this way. You know, if we're if we're being honest, let's say for the sake of argument that TikTok really is a Chinese spy tool. <laughs> is that going to get is that really going to get? Thing? No, apparently. No. Yeah, there's some truth to that. There is. But with that said, is that really going to get Americans to stop uh, living their lives on TikTok? No. Oh, it, are we, we on we TikTok? Are, we're on TikTok. We are addicted. We absolutely are. And I think that that's oh, a, that's a huge part. It's, and, and I would love to hear your thoughts on whether or not you think that the technology addiction that we have does have some correlation in why the decline of education has become pretty significant. Um, I can't quote a study on, well, there's, there's a book by Gene uh, um, Twenge iGen, and she's written a lot about the effects of social media and devices on, on young people. Uh, it, you know, there, there's really, there's a lot of malevolent intent in that. You know, the, the uh, Silicon Valley uh, leaders uh, don't let their kids use these devices, I'm told. And, and I think that's for a reason. If you're really uh, looking for a, uh, if you're wealthy and looking for an experience, you can have a vacation where you basically have no, no access to the internet. I mean, that's what luxury means these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my luxury is having someone that does social media for me so that I don't have so to let my brain go to sully my, well, I'm not, the people are too mean. They're just too mean. They and are. I don't, I honestly, 
Like, I don't need that kind of negative crap in my headspace. I really don't. Professor, I don't need to be fighting with people. Professor, Jen ran for Congress in 2020 against Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and we ended up doing pretty well, all things considered. And, you know, there's a possibility of potentially going one more time. And one of the reasons why I think she got really on the fence about whether she would do it or not is because people really do suck, especially when they have a technological toy in their hands that they can hide behind. And I will tell you that there was a particular incident where there was one person, there was a handful of them, but there was one person in particular who was just a vulture, nasty, nasty girl. And I ended up running into her at this public event. And I got to tell you, they shit their britches pretty fast when they, when you know who they are and they're not able to, to hide behind a screen. Then they have to act like a human being. And that's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> Then it's almost like this whole defense mechanism just shoots up at them. They're like, oh, oh, yeah, well, I know I said some stuff. Well, yeah, uh, but that's why as much as like Twitter, for example, can be an effective tool with connecting with people as we've connected and so forth. Yes. It's also not real life because the average person is not on social media. They check social media. The people that we see that are on social media all the time that's a reflection of the addiction that the tool actually has. But in terms of the real world, it's not most it's, people. It's not most people, yeah. at least from what I've seen. No, I don't think so. And and not in most countries. Have you been to Bhutan? No, I haven't. I, I, I lived for many years in Nepal. I was in Sikkim, uh, but I... You know, are you talking about gross national happiness? You know? I am. That's why I want to I want to go there. And actually, that is one of my biggest bucket list places. And that's why I need to go somewhere that measures gross national happiness. If we had universal health care and a living wage, I mean, that really it's a step would, in the right that, direction. It would solve most of the problems, if we're being honest. Over really time. I do. Yeah, probably. It would eliminate the stress factor. Uh, it would eliminate uh you know, just the ability yeah. to go out there and earn enough money to live in dignity. And I'm a huge proponent, even though, you know, my politics, you know, it depends on the issue where I stand. But I always say I will always be a proponent of living wage because I don't want our citizenry dependent on the government for assistance. And anyone in this country who complains about this idea that, oh, you just want to leech off the government, I'm like, if you paid a living wage, you wouldn't need to. In fact, if you had a living wage, there would be requirements. Uh, I've seen situations where you can get a government benefit that pays you more to not work than it is to actually work. That's a failed system. <laughs> I, I don't know what else you call it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that really has to change. We're very unhealthy. We are. But, but I would uh, I would suggest that rather than a living wage, we have a maximum wage. Uh, I love that in here, but that would freak out some of the people. That's, on a, our, that's, a, that's a Marxist <laughs> ideology that a lot of people just will uh, not get on. Board. And here's the thing. No, I, no, that's I, what FDR. Remember, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1942 proposed a 100% tax on all incomes above $25,000. Right. And that, that didn't pass. A, what was that? What does that translate to today, by the way? Because people about four hundred fifty-five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, but even still, that that's not a compromise that we could get enough people on board. With. No, I like it though. I got to tell. Here's what I like. I like the idea of how corporate subsidizing or helping corporations that have the percentage, um, like back in the olden days when the highest paid person makes X percentage more than. Like I, I like the idea of enforcing that. 
Professor, the, I, the one thing I will tell you that we have learned from our dealings with the political right, especially the more like libertarian side of pol- politics, uh, they believe in the free market, no questions asked, but they absolutely hate corruption and they do not care for big industry. They support small businesses, entrepreneurship, the idea of monopolization. I mean, my favorite president is Teddy Roosevelt for a reason. For somebody who was not only a class trader, but was willing to take on monopolies and was noted as the trust buster. We haven't had anything like that. And I think his story, we told it on our podcast once, one of his first uh, actions as president was dealing with the railroad strike. And he sided with the railroad workers, unlike our current president, who sided with the oligarchs. And that, to me, is a clear distinction in terms of how the system while in many ways it's changed due to technology, it's still the same. Only now their their hooks are so deep in terms of what has created this mass inequality of society. We better get our act together sooner rather than later, or we're heading. We've already become a third world country in in pockets. Yeah. Pretty soon, it's yeah. going to be third world across the board, yeah. and we need to be reading books like this. Yeah, guys, check out talk to. Check out Dr. Bizrushka's book, Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. It was really good. You can see, I always take, I take very copious notes. I have like a thing. And then I- That's the attorney. I, it is. I remember when I was in law school, like the whole idea of writing in books, like when I was a kid, that was sacrilegious. Like my mother would have like killed me if I colored in a book. And so I remember the first time I was allowed to write in books, I really wasn't so sure about that. Um, but yeah, I, I do. I take copious notes. I so appreciate this and I so appreciate the work that you're doing. And, and thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. It's been my pleasure. You've asked uh, very good questions and uh, I hope I've managed to reach a few people out there. You Absolutely. might push the idea. Chapter 10 is all about things you can do as an yes. individual working together. You know, I've tried to amalgamate a lot of strategies for uh, not dying young. Oh. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank I appreciate you, it. It was so nice to meet you. Stay well. You too. Thank you very much. Yeah. Our pleasure. He was lovely. Very nice man. Yeah. Well, you know, this is somebody who understands the nature of collective and actually gives a crap about like the health. I think a lot um, of people of, just get well, caught up in this whole idea that the collective is essentially, well, that's for everything. And no, it's not. It's for the basic necessities in society. Well, it's a concept. No, what you're talking about is where I sit there and say, okay, I, you know what, if you want to have capitalism on some of your non-essential things, then you just go ahead and do whatever you want to make like, you know, fidget spinners and rip people off with your fidget spinners. Have at it. Yeah, and if but you're I'm, foolish I'm enough to, you know, I just, I don't see how this works with a capitalist system. I just don't see how this works. And the idea that that you have to sell people on collectivism for some things, but not with other things. The reason that other societies do better than we do is their concept of the collective. It doesn't mean that they don't have private businesses and it doesn't mean that they don't have capitalism and it doesn't mean that there aren't rich people. There are rich people in those places, but they actually give a crap about the collective. They recognize that we're all connected which is why even in this country, which has the best healthcare for the very rich people, you guys are still going to have a lower life expectancy because of the inequality in this country. So it, it, that's the whole point of the book is that it affects everybody, even the wealthy people in those unequal places. And these are choices that we make. These are choices that we make. 
you know, and I, I, what really infuriates me, and I was sitting here thinking about this while we were talking about, so the first, what, two years from conception to, you know, your second birthday is the most critical time in a, in a human's life as far as predicting health outcomes for them. Okay. Like that's the biggest thing. And we have all these crazy nuts telling me what I can and cannot do with my person in terms of conceiving or having or birthing a child or very pro birth, but yet separation of church. And well, they, well, no, what I'm, what I'm going to say is you care so much about forcing women to hold, to, you know, have pregnancies and carry babies to term, but yet what are you doing to ensure the health of that baby? Because I guarantee you the stress that's on that mother who's wanting to terminate a pregnancy and isn't, isn't able to, it's not a good situation. So it's like now, okay, we know that that affects the health of the baby. So, and then when that baby's born, those same people that forced her to have that baby are not going to give any crap whatsoever about the health care of that baby. Not at all. They're going to send her home with some, uh, what we send home our moms from the hospital with are brand name things so that they'll get into whatever that brand formula is. And we don't give a crap about what happens to those. Babies. Oh yes. We require them to have an infant seat. That's like the extent of the support that women get when we go home from a hospital. Do you know that in France, like somebody actually comes to your house every week or however often it is and checks on you and checks on the baby. Like this is just part of how they treat women and mothers. And women have infinitely worse health outcomes in a lot of cases because there's infinitely more stress on women in terms of doing all of those things. And our country provides no support. Yes, Emily's friend from Finland was on her third year of paid leave. And yes, it's not at 100%. Third year? Uh-huh, yep. She, you get until your kid is three years old in Finland and it isn't necessarily, I don't know what percentage of pay it's at and all that. But what I do know is that they very much value people's lives and their enjoyment and their lack of stress, which leads to healthy people, which leads to better healthy country. It's really not rocket science, people. It's so not complicated. And it's just a matter of getting enough people to understand. Imagine, imagine if it wasn't so difficult. It, it, it's just really not that difficult. And I just, it's just so important to get people to understand the nature and the importance of collective. And all of these things are part of that to me. What are you getting, what are you prompting up, propping up to watch here? I'm sorry, I'm done with my rant about the whole, we care about in utero babies, well, don't except worry, we don't I'm care sure, about how healthy they are. Well, don't worry, I'm sure Ben's got plenty of good stuff to work off. Oh on. my God, that, that was like, my, that, that like was five my. five minutes long? <laughs> That's pretty good. Sorry, I was thinking that the whole time, but we're talking about how it's so important in that phase you know, the of development. The difference is if you were on the house floor, you would actually be talking about something like this and not complaining about somebody getting kicked off of a committee. I'm just saying that there would actually I be might be complaining kind of, about that too. Well, yeah. I might be complaining about a whole boatload of things. Both things can be proper. So as you guys know, there is a lot of talk going on right now uh, pertaining to what is going to happen in 2024 on the Republican side uh, we all know that this is a two-horse race. It is between Governor Ron DeSantis and former President Donald Trump. Uh, things got very, very interesting, uh, I believe, earlier to or yesterday uh, regarding a book signing. Again, all the typical patterns that a politician with some degree of, you know, what you would call 
I guess, some gravitas like a, a, a Governor DeSantis has, uh, what is one of the things that they always do when they're going to run for president on either side? Well, they usually have a book that they're going to peddle. And so in Governor DeSantis's case, he's got the book and the tour has begun and he's making all of the outlets and getting himself out there. But I think our governor may have finally stepped in it regarding president, former president. I think he finally let Trump get under his skin. Uh, John Idarola, friend from the Damage Report, uh, has this covered. He did a video on it. We are going to use him as a proxy. Thank you, John. Uh, here is the footage uh, from one of TYT channels that was able to cover this in Leesburg, which is about, I guess, about a half hour, 40 minutes north of Orlando. So this is in the central part of the state. That's kind of close to like the villages. It and is. That, oh, okay. And that's very Trump. Yes. That's a very, very Trumpy, Trumpy part of the state, for sure. But a very, uh, but a very red part, uh, if you will. Right? Yeah. Okay. And so this is the footage of what actually went down. And again, this is not going to end well for DeSantis if he thinks this is how to get it done. I hope he doesn't do this again. Yes. Because. Because of what you're wearing? Because they told me to say anybody wearing Trump has to go right now. Oh, 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 so that is uh, outside of a book signing for Ron DeSantis happening just yesterday. Okay. Yes, he found a book that he's willing to tolerate. It's his own. He wrote it. <laughs> um, but all those people who just wanted to attend the book signing and committed the crime of having Trump signs or Trump clothing, be gone. You've been banished by King Meatball Ron himself. <laughs> and they didn't like it. Not the regular crazy Trump fans or the special uh, brand of crazy Trump fan act activist. Activist. I love that they're activists. Who are you helping? Uh, Laura Loomer was there and they did not take kindly to being banned from this site. They seem to not have gotten the memo that all that stuff about free speech and opposing cancel culture is branding. He doesn't actually mean it, but here's more from what happened. Are you acting like the far left? Because we're acting like the far left trying to get Trump elected. Yeah, well, you're acting like the far left. You, you're trying acting, to get Trump elected. You've got the same way. Trying to get Trump elected. Trying to get Trump elected is the far left. Yes. Trying to get Trump elected is the far left. I am a Trump supporter. Well, but you technically, got, technically, you shouldn't be over there then. I'm doing my job, dude. So, and so are we. So right. are we. But so are we. private property, you need to leave. You, you are on private property. You need to leave. Well, technically, that was private property. This works with the Democrats because most of the Democrats are weak. This is not going to work with these guys. No, this isn't going to go This well. is going to get a lot worse. And if Now he's going to get trolled big time. If DeSantis thinks that this is going to help him. Oh, and by the way. You know, I find it so hilarious that you've got these Democrat, you know, sycophants, if you will, thinking that, oh, we're definitely better off just 
voting for Trump in the primary and making him the nominee again. And he, be careful what you wish well, for. Well, I just don't understand that because my, my, my thought process is this. Didn't you call that the Pied Piper strategy in the first place? And wasn't that like the reason we were like, I mean, why do they keep trying the same? It has worked in a few places, but to me, I would think that the risk assessment would be such that you wouldn't want to tempt fate that way. It is very risky. And what I would also say- Well, for them. Yeah. Well, again, DeSantis- The rest of us know it doesn't make a bit of difference. DeSantis doesn't seem to understand that there's kind of like this pullback period where you stop acting like an authoritarian. But he clearly hasn't gotten that memo. And the fact that he just stepped in it against Trump's supporters, let me tell you, uh, he's got something to say. Wait, and you know what, though? But And Danny did mention that it would be nice to see Byrne. Uh-oh. You're totally not going to see Bernie. You're going to see me. And oh, I'll tell you why you're going to see God. me. It is really great to be here. And my I appreciate support, that Danny my, uh, wanted to see excuse Bernie. Excuse me. My supporters are really incredible people. <sighs> They love me. They love America. They are the ones who are making America great again. Again. Hey, what do you think about that we are such an unhealthy country? Well, look at me. I'm a totally unhealthy person, but that is a reflection of America. So keep eating all the McDonald's. It's really great. It may not end well, and it certainly doesn't come out well. Because we just had a guest that was talking about how unhealthy we are, and he's very, he was a very smart person. Is he a rich person? No, I don't Then he's a terrible person. I don't need to hear about him. Anyway, as I was saying, Ron, meatball de sanctimonious. We always call him meatball and cheese, meatball and sausage. We'll figure out one that's going to stick. But it certainly isn't spaghetti and meatballs because he's a really terrible person. He acts like a sleazeball. That's his new nickname. I totally came up with it. Ron Sleazeball DeSantis. What do you think is a good nickname? Really it is, I got to tell you, I, really I am very personally like I understand being frustrated with the violations of free speech. So I and, and it's also it's a very really, poor political move on his it's part. It's really terrible. He totally doesn't appreciate free speech or the Constitution. He's sanctimonious, as I like to say. But our supporters are great people. They deserve all the respect. And I totally appreciate them. You can come to my book signing anytime you like. You just can't come on the golf course. I will say that. Like your events are definitely very welcoming and open. My events are very fun. They're going to be great. We're going to get them going. I'm pretty sure I saw Bounce House. There was a lot of great things and lots of great memorabilia. Trump everything. Trump shirts, Trump hats, steaks, water. You name it, you've got it all. You know what? What I what, what's interesting? My it's pres- like if you were in real, me. excuse and me, and the threat wasn't real, somebody like you would actually be really fun. Like that would be fun and hilarious. Totally but, it, fun. but the fact is, you're real, and it's not. It's scary. No, I'm totally fun, and we're having a great time. Our events are really great. The people come out; they have a wonderful time, and we're going to keep having a wonderful time. Being part of the Trump train means the party never ends. Come on, ride the train. And ride it, woo, woo, come on, ride the train, the Trump train. Good to see you. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the little interaction um, that we saw people calling out Joy Behar for specifically saying that the people in East Palestine, basically, they deserve this because they voted for Trump? Like that this was somehow a reflection of, well, you voted for him and then he relaxed the regulate, relaxed the regula- regulations. Nina, and- Tur- Nina Turner is a friend and... As much as we wish she was in Congress right now, she is, as you have pointed out, probably in an even better position to continue doing what she's doing because she has got zero Fs. Oh, she was on with um, CNN. Oh, it was so good. 
She was so good. And her talking about joy was was really it was great. Yeah, I never know what it is that I'm watching because it's just always clips of things. So that's why I never remember where I saw the interview. I just know I saw it. What you have to remember about Joy Behar Uh, is that she was somebody who back in 2016, I think it was 2016, when it looked like Bernie was actually going to win. And she specifically said to Bernie regarding going after Hillary on the Iraq war, can't you just get over it already? It was already, you know, I, the, it, I mean, if that's not sanctimonious privilege of the liberal highest order, I don't know what is, but she sure as hell, rec, you know, represents that. I've often said that one of the things that you have to remember about the way the Democratic Party has changed and, and when we hear from people saying, well, the Republican Party is worse, I'm like, here's, here's normal. Normal's here. Or, or, or here. So normal's right here. And here's where the Democrats are. And here's where the Republicans are. It doesn't matter if you have either one. You're screwed either way. You're just screwed a little bit less, but you're still screwed. And the people and that are truly problem. screwed are so screwed that it really doesn't matter it to them. It really doesn't. Like we've been canvassing and on the ground in one form or another periodically over the past like four years over two two different administrations i gotta tell you their lives still suck the same people whose lives sucked under trump still suck under joe and the people that are sitting there and arguing about it are people that are in a position that they can be arguing and about i'm it. still really trying to understand how people think that biden is a good president or that he's done good things and i had to have a conversation i'm so angry right now when you say that he just fucked labor how is that a good president? I just had a conversation with a family member. I won't say who. You'll probably guess I'm who. sure I'll know. I think Joe is a good man. Ugh. Like, if th- that's liberal sanctimony of the highest order. You don't know him. You've never been around him. I, You've only seen him on television. Is she aware of the crime bill? Is she aware? Well, it's like, in what capacity is he a good man? I, I would argue that he's responsible for a lot of death and destruction and serious generational trauma in black and brown communities forever. Well, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you who's a good man. Okay, here it is, Danny. It's happening. This is for you, brother. <laughs> Talk about Jay, Joy Behar. You've been on with them. Well, You've gone on The View with Joy, Bernie. You know, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of nice things to say about Joy uh, she is somebody who, unfortunately, has had me on The View. Yes. Uh, it's a it's a morning show that, you know, Jane watches every once in a while. I don't personally care for I it. think it is way below her, her level, I'm well, just saying. Look, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but I go on there because apparently a lot of ladies who vote end up watching that show during the daytime. I mean, they have, you know, free time. That's wonderful. But the thing, unfortunately, regarding Joy Behar that is a problem is that she had me on her show and asked me why I go after Hillary Clinton, Secretary Clinton, about her vote for the Iraq war. And she asked me to get over it. Um, No, unfortunately, I can't get over it because we have endless war. We are never going to get where we need to go as a nation if we continue to have an overly, ridiculously large military budget. I do what I can with the limited options I have but we must recognize that there is a genocide in Yemen. There is endless war in Syria. And if we are not careful, we are heading for endless war in Ukraine. When I saw President Zelensky make his speech the other day, 
saying that we are now going to have to get American troops on the ground in Ukraine. That is World War III. There is no coming back from that. So we must recognize as a country, as a nation, we are going down the wrong path if we do not find a way out of this quagmire, as I like to say, with the endless wars and especially this war between Ukraine and Russia. I actually think that if we're going to get involved in, you know, having, you know, boots on the ground situation, and I've thought this for a very, very long time, that as long as we start with all of the children, grandchildren and great grandchildren of Congress, that they get shipped off first, then I'm actually okay with them when they make the choice to get us involved in wars. That's my, that's my thought. So if we send their kids first, Why don't you acknowledge MN? But I thought Stephanie Kelton was your, your advisor at some point. I do acknowledge MNP. I do understand that we are a nation with a federal reserve. We are able to print our own currency and that the federal reserve, as is macroeconomics, the federal level money is, is different. We can print our own money, whereas at the state and local level, you have to balance the budget. So I am for universal health care. I am for a living wage thriving wage. I am for labor. And you are definitely for parental leave. We just talked about that with our guests, the importance of yes. the, the women and men being able to stay oh, home look, with babies. The nurturing of our children for generations to come is very important. Yes. So when a child is born, they must be taken care of properly. And if not, they unfortunately are looking at a not so bright future. That is reflective in all the things that happen, not just in the early stages of development, but also through their early years and then later years of education. So unfortunately, we have a lot of problems going on in this country right now. Uh, but I have to keep saying, my good friend Joe, it's for you know branding purposes. And just trying to maintain the status quo here, Jen. What yeah, are we do? yeah, he's not your friend. We're looking he's at a president. We're looking friend. at a Trump at the Santos presidency. Can and that's all. You know what? Is? And you know what? Everybody has accountability in that, even you. Yes, I understand. Danny, I hope you enjoyed. Good to see you all. You're right. Loner weirdo. They always send the poor. That's one of the, yeah, that's, that's our the jobs gonna, program. That's the way they're going to sell it. Believe me. They're gonna sell, so I actually, I've always thought that as long as their family members go first, then okay. Cause I, I, I think that if that were the deal, then we would find a very different attitude about funding uh, those types of ventures. That's what I think. Thank you, Prep. I really appreciate it. Nikolai, I appreciate it. Danny, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, and there's definitely like d different groups on that, that watch, like the people that really like that stuff, and the people that like like watch interviews and then no, don't we watch definitely the have silly. A, we have a unique crowd. It fluctuates in terms of the viewership, but like you said, a lot of times they just end up watching after we go. Uh, we're finished with our live stream. But we're very unique here. Yes, I was just talking about that because you know I'm in the process of you know saving up money for our little organization so that I could potentially form a 501c3. Right now we're a C4. But, um, and one of the things that, that, we, that I was talking about today is how unique it is how we're in this position. How many nonprofit organizations are offshoots of 
unsuccessful congressional campaigns. And yet they're, even though they're a 501c4, they're actually a service organization. Well, we're trying to do the best we can and try to set precedent for a lot of people that end up running for office, but don't actually know what to do with it once it's over. Very often people who run for office just run because they want to be an elected official. There is so much more to it than that, especially considering the country we live in today. That's sort of the point of the book that, you know, sits there and worked on forever. Well, saying I, I've asked you. I know. You know we can talk about, about that. Yeah. Because that's the point of it is like, what do you do with a campaign? How do you create a campaign that it lasts beyond the, the campaign, win or lose? Like, how do you create an organization from that? And it really wasn't hard to do when your campaign is service-based. If you're running a service-based campaign. It doesn't even have to be really long either. No, it doesn't. No, it's just the premise of what you're doing and how you're spending your time. And if you're having a service-based campaign, it's actually pretty easy to transition that into um, a nonprofit doing service. And you could even do it and then be non-political. And then then you would easily qualify as 501c3. Like that's our thing. Is That's why we're a C4. If you like our work, please go to patreon.com forward slash generational change. As little as $5 a month, you can become a supporter of our wonderful, small but mighty channel. Of course, you will get the Lulu sticker, and that is always welcome. But Wait. if you become a Lou, $10. come here. Ooh. She's sleeping, and she's um, had a rough day. She's had a, she had a long day. But you get the Lulu sticker, $5 if you to, patrons. If you go up to 10 you get the and this parliamentarian one. bumper sticker. So you get two. And you know what? See, this is what I think when you don't do it properly. And this is what you get, guys. You, you get the Lulu sticker and you get to drive around with a mansion parliamentarian for 24. Look at that. That could be your next president and vice president right there. Absolutely. Because these people are so much more powerful than Joe because otherwise we'd have a $15 minimum wage. Uh, so I really think that's where we should be supporting so the real power behind. in the party. It's really sad. Terrible. Well, it's just it's pathetic, so guys. So anyway, yeah, it's it's silly. And But if you're feeling really, really generous, $25 a month will get you this wonderful tri-blend, Jersey-style yeah. generational, change, generational change t-shirt. And of course, we are thinking about bringing back the purple. Uh, yeah, I think we'll bring back the purple, but we'll make them gen change. We don't need gen core shirts. Now, if you do not want to put your name on the grid, which is fine. And, and also, um, um, we had like time. only like three people voted in my little Patreon poll about having, bringing back, having a members meeting and it was two to one for it. So I'm thinking, you know what, I'm going to start doing uh, Patreon Zoom. We could do a call in. Um, we could do a few different things like that. I mean, it's really just a matter of the technology and me figuring out how to do everything. I only really know how to do like a, a Zoom with the Patreon people. If you're so inclined, please go to Cash App and for and, however amount. And guys, our have. money like that comes in here goes to service. And this, I mean, I have this one sitting here, but like these are hygiene packs that I give out to um, our unhoused community here, which like everywhere else is um, larger and larger by the day. We appreciate each and every one of you next week on Monday. Hopefully this time there will be no issue. I don't think there will be, knock on wood. But next week we are going to have, starting on Monday, our good friend, Steve Grumbine, who will come on. We will have our social security conversation. That would be a fun call-in segment. Okay, but I don't know how to do it. 
Yeah, I think there's, I'd have to talk to Jordan about okay. that and how that would be done. But he doesn't use StreamYard. He uses something else. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what we can do with that. On Wednesday, we are going to have Good Politic Guy. I just messaged you today about him. Really? Mm-hmm. That's, that was really cool. I seriously, I, this is what I do all day. Somebody take hasn't it. been checking their calendar. I no, no, no. I saw that some things, I've been with Sophie at the vet. Like I've been having issues today in all fairness to me. I take a snap, I take a screenshot of people that I want to talk to and I text it to him and I'm like, this guy would be good to talk to. And I just sent you that guy today. Good politic guy. Good uh, politic guy. So he's coming. Uh, the following good. week we will have. Uh, I did see that you had the um, worker strike back. Yes. Worker strike back is going to be coming on. I want to say um, on the 13th. Okay. Who's coming? What, is she coming? Uh, don't know. Is she know. coming? Don't what know. if What if you like put it out there that I'm like a real big fan and like it would be really cool to meet I'll her? I'll just ask her. I'll see. But I'm not. And if I'm you guys are not talking about Shama Sawant. Uh, we're looking to bring back the Amazing Atheist. Uh, we are very likely going to be doing a military panel in not so honorably 20 year anniversary of the war in Iraq and knowing full well that we could be heading right down that path again with Ukraine. So we will be having, uh, you know, a panel to talk about that. And then I asked he, they haven't confirmed yet. We'll see. And then we will also be having on two authors uh, of a book that Jen really wants to talk about, Bright oh. Green Lies. Oh yeah, this is very important, guys. The book is called Bright Green Lies. It isn't a new book. It's been out for for a few years. I saw an interview with them on something a while ago. Look who's here. Okay, she decided she wanted to come up. Hi, pretty face. But so Bright Green Lies, guys, if you haven't heard about this book, at least check out what it's about. It's really important. I think it really changes our whole perspective on what we're doing regarding the climate crisis. Um, and that our solutions are not really solutions. So, oh, I'm excited about that. Pick her up a little hard. There she goes. Hi, pretty girl. <laughs> so again, smash that like button, get this out there. Danny, I totally understand your concern. Uh, Bernie, Bernie's a curmudgeon. He's our curmudgeon. We love the guy. Uh, there is somebody who is going to be running for president. Uh, nudge her and nudge whoever else. We do support MMT. Again, people do not understand it, and that's okay. I support it, and I still don't completely understand it, but I still support it. That we print our own currency? Uh, yes, The fact do. that we're being lied to and screwed over makes more sense to me than anything else, so why would I not understand that? I, I, at this point, it's just it's anyone blatant. who says that you have the money to print in order to spend on endless war. Again, the amount of money that we have spent on endless war, I already know, could cover for two years tuition-free public college and trade schools. I don't know about you, but I think that would Where's have a lot sticker? more value. Where's the sticker? Give me my sticker. Give me the Lulu sticker. She's right there. See? See, pretty. Hello. She's considerably older than when she first posed for this. <laughs> Just kidding. She never posed this poor for lady. <laughs> but we appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for your amazing support. And we'll see you Monday. Bye, all.
Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.